If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. There's a price tag on religion, and religion is about secular power as well as about uh, theological realities. That was Eamon Duffy discussing the Reformation. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of March 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. One of the biggest anniversaries that we'll be marking this year is 500 years since Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which kick-started the European Reformation and had an enormous legacy on global history. One of the foremost experts on this area is Professor Eamon Duffy of the University of Cambridge, whose books such as The Stripping of the Altars and The Voices of Morbath are greatly renowned. His latest book, published just a few days ago, is Reformation Divided, which focuses particularly on the events in England. Our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn, paid a visit to Eamon a little while back to find out more. So 2017 is widely being referred to as the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. But what exactly do we mean when we're talking about the Reformation and why was it so significant? It's the breakup of Western Christendom. There'd been a series of reform movements and attempts at reform right through the 15th and early 16th century. There'd been a council at the Lateran, which was an attempt to clean up the life of the Catholic Church. What was new in 1517 was that Martin Luther challenged the fundamental theological presuppositions on which Christianity in the West had operated for nearly a thousand years. And that led to a 
um, a fissure right down the center of Europe, essentially the north and east of Europe when Protestant, uh, rejected the Catholic synthesis, and uh, you got the emergence of two different lifestyles in Christianity, one essentially Bible-based and with a very heavy emphasis on uh, the laity, and the other, uh, which was an attempt to reaffirm the structures that had dominated Christianity for the previous thousand years. So tell us about how all the things that were transpiring in Europe then impacted on what was happening in England. Well, England under Henry VIII in the 1520s was really the heartland of the defence of Catholicism. The king himself wrote or had ghost written for him, probably he did write part of it, a strong defence of the seven Catholic sacraments uh, directed against Martin Luther. And he orchestrated, uh, via Cardinal Woolsey, uh, a campaign to defend Catholicism at the two universities of Oxford and Cambridge. So the best minds of those universities were drawn into writing in defense of Catholicism. What changed that was that in the late 1520s, Henry was anxious to get rid of his wife, Catherine of Aragon. What he wanted was a papal and annulment, which would have allowed him to remarry, to, so to declare that marriage void. Unfortunately for him, the Pope at the time was the prisoner of Catherine's nephew, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. It's very unlikely the Pope would have granted the annulment anyway. Henry's case was not strong. But the political circumstances meant that it it just wasn't going to happen. And in the end, what Henry did was to uh, sever relations with the Church of Rome and absorb into the crown all the previous legal functions of the papacy. So... Henry's Reformation was not so much driven by doctrinal issues, though they got drawn into it. It it was drawn in by the king's need uh, for a male heir. That was the trigger, but of course there were people in England um, who were committed to Luther's project, who were reformers, and their ship came in when the divorce led to the break with Rome. Uh, Henry needed support for his new arrangements and the people who were most in favour of them were convinced Protestants. And so though that term wasn't really in in general use till well into the 1540s. They wouldn't have called themselves Protestants, evangelicals, reformers, but not Protestants. Uh, But uh, eventually Thomas Cromwell... Uh, and Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the King's first minister, collaborated in promoting a reforming agenda which ultimately led in Edward's reign to a quite dramatic Protestantizing of the English church. The mass remained in place all through the reign of Henry VIII. As soon as he died, it was abolished and replaced by an English liturgy, the Book of Common Prayer. So perhaps could you outline for us the real central differences at this time between the old Catholic Church and all its practices and the new radical ideas of Protestantism? Uh, The Catholic system was sacramental. It 
laid very heavy emphasis on the material communication of spiritual truths. The, the central symbol of that was the mass and the belief that in the mass, Christ was, uh, his sacrifice on Calvary was made present again, and the material bread and wine communicated his body and blood. Luther himself accepted that belief. He was out of step with the rest of the Reformation in retaining a very strong belief in the presence of Christ in the material elements of the Eucharist. But most Protestants, and certainly most English Protestants, viewed the Eucharist as uh, essentially symbolic. And the, the Reformers were very worried about Catholic emphasis on the material as a vehicle for the spiritual. So there was a, a, a spiritualizing of Christianity and a retreat from external symbol, from statues, relics, as well as from the Catholic sacraments. So the, the, the seven Catholic sacraments were reduced to two, baptism and the Eucharist. And the other great difference was the repudiation of the papacy and of the authority of the church. Uh, Protestants uh, placed the center of authority in Christianity in the pages of the Bible. Catholics placed the center of authority in the living authority of the church and its ministers. And that was a very profound difference. Is it fair to characterize the pre-Reformation Catholic Church as decadent, corrupt, and in some way to blame for the reform that came? Well, the church is always decadent and corrupt um, in every age. Ecclesia Semper Reformanda was a Reformation slogan, but it was also a, 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 uh, an idea that was current in the Middle Ages. So the church is it's made up of human beings, and wherever there is power, there is abuse. Whether the abuse warranted what happened is another issue. Uh, it's one of the paradoxes of the Reformation that everybody agreed that the officials of the church were corrupt, that many of its institutions were corrupt. That is not what Luther attacked. Luther called for a doctrinal transformation. So whereas reform efforts in the previous centuries had been uh, focused on cleaning up the act, on getting monks and nuns to behave themselves, to be chaste, to get the clergy to be conscientious, to preach and so on. Those kinds of issues were not the centre of the Reformation. What reformers attacked were the fundamental tenets of Catholic Christianity. So if you were looking for great differences between Catholic Christianity and Protestant Christianity at the end of the 16th century they would have included the abolition of the monastic life. For the previous thousand years, whenever anybody wanted to reform Christianity, they founded monasteries. The idea was that you got people who were so dedicated to Christianity that they set aside family life, lived austerely, renounced comfort. And so the monastic life had been seen as the spearhead of reform. The reformers abolished it altogether. Or again, in Catholic countries, the dead were seen as still part of the community, both in the form of the holy dead, the saints who could pray for us, and 
in the practice of praying for one's own family. I, I often think that the most shocking thing about the Reformation for many ordinary people must have been when they were forbidden to pray for the dead members of their family. Notoriously, um, Calvin conducted a, a campaign in Geneva to stop widows putting candles on their husbands' graves. So these differences cut very deeply into people's psyche. But as your book highlights, it wasn't just as simple as Catholic versus Protestant. Um, can you tell us about some of the divisions within these two religious camps? Sure. If we start with Protestantism in England in the uh, Tudor and Stuart period, many of those who wanted to see the Church of England reformed were more or less content with the system that was put in place by law in Elizabeth's reign. Uh, the monasteries were gone, prayers for the dead, the cult of the saints was gone, the Bible was enthroned in every parish church, uh, and you had, a, in theory, a, a preaching minister in every parish. And people thought, that's good. There were a group within the national church who felt that this simply wasn't good enough, that uh, people were still sinful, there was a lot of drunkenness, there was sexual misbehavior, people's Christianity was tepid. Here, religion, the Protestant religion, was the most important thing in the world. Society must be made to conform to it. And so you got what we loosely call the Puritan movement, which attempted to intensify and cleanse the established Protestant religion. And uh, the last third of my book is devoted to the efforts of uh, various individuals and groups to achieve that over the century or so after the, the break with Rome. As we know, the Reformation was a much broader span of various different events and changes and reforms. Could you highlight some of the real key events in that timeline? I don't think it's a matter of key events. One of the profound differences uh, between thinking about the Reformation these days and the way in which it was thought about and taught uh, maybe 40 or 50 years ago was that we're very much more conscious now of what a great labor the Reformation was. Um, there used to be an assumption, especially among historians of the English Reformation, that the Reformation was a bit of a pushover, that, you know, the, the late medieval church was decadent and corrupt, it was unpopular, and so that when somebody came in and blew the whistle and said, the emperor has no clothes, everybody said, oh, yes, you're right, and settled down happily and quickly into being good Protestants. We now know that just it wasn't the case. Late medieval Christianity was deeply embedded in patterns of life, in institutions, and in people's psyche. And it took generations to train people out of those older patterns. And in some cases, it never happened. There were parts of England, parts of Wales, parts of the Northwest, around Lancashire, for example, where essentially Catholicism was never eradicated. And so writing the history of the Reformation now constantly has to engage with the idea of a long Reformation, which took centuries. But we've also become aware that the, the Catholic Reformation, because, of course, the Catholic Church, partly in response to the Protestant Reformation and partly because these energies were there anyway, had its own 
series of reform efforts, uh, transformation of the papacy, the rise of new religious orders like the Jesuits, the creation of seminaries which trained a much more professional kind of clergy. And all of that had a big impact on Catholicism in England. Um, that process itself wasn't a unified process. There were, uh, For example, the Council of Trent never settled properly the debate about whether we were saved by doing good actions or by simple trust in the mercy of God. Justification by faith was an issue for Catholics as well as Protestants. The Council of Trent came up with a formula which tried to do justice to both ideas, but there were forces which emerged in the 17th century in the form of Jansenism, which sympathized with Protestant teaching on this matter, only on that matter. The Jansenists were, were sacramentalists and believed in, in the episcopate and uh, so on, so they rejected Protestant ideas in those areas. But those energies became very divisive within Catholicism and were reflected in England in the very small Catholic community. You suggest that the term the Reformation is quite unsatisfactory yes. and a uh, a problematic yes. label. Yes, yes. Why? Well, the Reformation, especially if you capitalise it, assumes that what was there before needed reforming. Uh, an, an earlier book of mine, The Stripping of the Altars, argued that actually Christianity in England on the eve of the Tudor Reformation was in pretty good shape and was certainly very popular indeed. And it wasn't so much reformed, as dismantled. Uh, it's one of the paradoxes of the English Reformation, for example, that apart from abolishing the religious life, the reformers did nothing whatever to reform the structures of the church. So huge financial inequalities between badly paid curates in Lancashire and well-to-do clergy in the Thames Valley. The cathedrals carried on. They antiquated structure of the diocese, which didn't adapt to, for example, industrialization till quite late on mm -hmm. in the 19th century. All those things remain just as they were. So to call the transformation and breakup of Christendom in the 16th century, the Reformation, is laden with Protestant value. It begs the question. Um, just as calling the Catholic Reformation, which began seriously in the 1530s and went on well into the 19th century, to call that the Counter-Reformation is to define it in terms of what Protestants were doing and to see it as simply a reaction. So historians have become rather cautious uh, about using the term the Reformation. And it's, it's interesting that several of the major recent studies have either pluralized the term and talked about reformations or dropped the definite article and talked about reformation. And I, I think that's a, that's a healthy development. It, it means that we're not, before we start, buying into value judgments about what it was that happened and about the, the value or otherwise of the separate outcomes of Catholic and Protestant uh, attempts to clean the church up. So we've spoken a bit about the role of Henry VIII, 
But after he had broken with Rome, how long did these ideas and this process take to take seed? When Henry died, the officials of his church, the bishops, were divided between radicals deeply committed to the new ideas, people like Bishop Latimer and supremely Thomas Cranmer, and many much more conservative figures who'd acquiesced in the abolition of the papacy and the monastic life, but who were in everything else Catholic. And that party, the Catholic party, were overthrown in Edward's reign. The boy king was himself a convinced Protestant, and the Edwardine Reformation was extremely radical. It was a drastic reformation which totally abolished the mass, replaced it with a very stark Protestant communion service. And had Edward lived, it might well have been the case that episcopacy itself, the the system of governing the church by bishops, would have been abolished. What changed all that was, first of all, the succession Uh, after Edward's early death, of a Catholic queen who restored Catholicism for five years, and then the uh, accession of the half-sister of the two of them, uh, Elizabeth, who was committed to Protestantism, but not to a radical transformation of the national church. She re enacted Edward's Reformation, but she, for example, liked ritual, she liked elaborate church music, and she uh, dug her heels in about allowing further reform of the church. Once the settlement was in place, she felt it was settled. And that set up a tension within the National Church between the Puritan party, who wanted more, faster, and you could say that Queen Elizabeth was the inventor of Anglicanism uh, because she wanted reformed doctrine but uh, a more traditional kind of practice. And it's thanks to her in many ways that Anglicanism eventually took on the sort of mediating uh, position which we associate with it in the 19th and 20th centuries. So do you think that if um, the Catholic Queen Mary had perhaps had an heir or she had not died so soon after taking the throne, that the country could have done a complete U-turn and gone back to Catholicism? I think there's not the slightest doubt about it. Most of Europe, most of the powerful rulers of Europe in the second half of the 16th century were Catholics. Um, If Mary had had an heir he or she would have been uh, the ruler of the Netherlands as well as of England. So you would have had a Catholic axis across the North Sea and England would have gone like uh, like Belgium, the, the southern Netherlands, which went Calvinist and then was successfully and dramatically re-Catholicized so that by uh, the beginning of the 17th century, the the Netherlands uh, had a Protestant North what we call Holland, and a Catholic South, what we call Belgium. And uh, there's no doubt that the success of the Counter-Reformation in Belgium could have been replicated in England. Mary's great mistake was in not killing Elizabeth or in not marrying her to a Catholic nobleman. 
how can we trace the impact of the Reformation on ordinary people's lives? It's very difficult to do that, but... Uh, for example, one way of doing it is to look at social institutions. I wrote a book some years ago about a tiny community on the edge of Exmoor, a place called Moorbath. Uh, and Moorbath was about 130 people. It's a very small farming community, 130, 150 people. But before the Reformation, 12 of those every year were involved in administration and ritual practices uh, in the parish church. They maintained lights in front of particular statues. Uh, there were youth groups for the young men and the young women who uh, organized dances and social events in order to fund activities in the church. The Reformation abolished all that. So there's a very concrete way in which the complex interlocking of social life and religious life after the Reformation gets stripped out. It becomes starker. So those youth groups disappear or have to find a purely secular outlet. Now, there was a payoff for that as well as a disadvantage. Sometimes being involved in the church in that way could be very burdensome to people. But equally, it could be an opportunity, it could be a sort of apprenticeship for um, office in the manorial courts or in, in the, uh, as a church warden, which gave you influence and standing in the community. So that's one way in which we can measure uh, a negative impact on people's lives. More positively, you can see the, the fact that the Reformation placed an enormous value on uh, literacy so that people could read the Bible, that had a knock-on effect in promoting literacy. Uh, it certainly had a beneficial effect on the standard of the clergy in England. So it was expected that more and more clergy would go to university and get a degree. Not in theology. Very few clergy would... Theology was a, gra a postgraduate subject. But they'd get a basic training in the liberal arts and in basic religious catechesis uh, as undergraduates. And so by the mid-17th century, most English clergy were graduates. That was a great achievement. And is there any way of telling how much people, apart from, you know, uh, clerics who wrote about it, how much the ordinary people internalised these changes in doctrine? Well, it depends where you look. Uh, if you're thinking about a community like, say, the, the community in which John Bunyan in the mid-17th century moved, uh, there are people of the Bible. Just think of the, the way in which the language of Pilgrim's Progress, which becomes a great religious, the great religious bestseller of, the, of Protestant England, um, it's absolutely saturated in the language and imagery of the Bible and certainly people in the gathered churches of the mid-17th century were people of the Bible. And much more generally, the English imagination gets saturated with biblical stories. Reformers, Protestant reformers, the Puritans, always maintained that all of this was skin deep, that if you scratched ordinary people, they were still really operating with a kind of Catholic folk religion, 
that they didn't really believe in justification by faith because they thought that you could ignore religion, but so long as you were kind to your neighbors and good to your husband or your wife, you'd get to heaven. So the, the Puritans maintained there was a kind of practical Pelagianism that harked back to the Catholic Middle Ages and that people were still attached to holy wells and uh, magical practices to cure toothache and so on, all of which should have gone at the Reformation. So that's one of the engines that drove the movement for further reform within the Protestant Church. And down the centuries, the Reformation, of course, did result in a lot of bloodshed. Why were these religious matters considered so, so important that people who disagreed with you, heretics, had to be killed? First of all, early modern Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, believed that you could not be saved if you believed and practiced religious error. They thought that God had revealed a certain number of truths and salvation was contingent on believing those truths and it was the obligation of a Christian ruler to promote and enforce Christian belief and Christian practice. More pragmatically, most people in Europe did not believe that you could have a staple country if people were fundamentally divided about value, about what was and wasn't true, uh, about how you should behave. So church allegiance encoded a whole set of other values. In England specifically, of course, because of the royal supremacy, belief in Protestantism was identified with loyalty to the crown. Henry VIII, actually, when he talked about uh, the word of God, meant royal authority. He, he made a very stark identification between obedience to the king and obedience to God. So it's, it wasn't really till post-Enlightenment times, really till the 19th century, that it became very widely accepted that you could have a stable society in which people uh, agreed to differ. You, you find this in uh, being articulated by Enlightenment figures like Thomas Jefferson in, in the States, who says, uh, a man who rejects my uh, religious beliefs neither breaks my leg nor picks my pocket. So, you know, uh, you, he's not hurting you in any way, so leave it alone. That's a very rare view in Reformation Europe, either among Catholics or Protestants. If one's thinking about Thomas More, who was one of the most rational men in Europe in the early 16th century, but who became a vehement and extremely relentless opponent of Protestantism, one of the motivating factors in More's hatred of heresy, and hatred's not too strong a word, was that he believed that value, moral, religious, social value, came from uh, operating within a consensus, an ancient consensus of the whole Christian people. And he saw Protestants as proudly rejecting the wisdom of the ages and the consensus 
of the society around them. He saw them as a kind of anarchist who was like a worm eating away at the inside of the agreed foundations of society. So he certainly thought that the Reformation tenets would dissolve Christendom. And in practical terms, that is what happened, that the Reformation did unleash uh, more than a century of European civil war uh, with the breakdown of the idea that just as there was one spiritual leader, the the Pope, who, who could adjudicate on truth, there was one political order with, at the head of it, the emperor, uh, who could call other Christian kings to order if they deviated from uh, objective truth. John Fisher, Saint John Fisher, who was executed in the same year as Moore, um, did actually call on Charles V to depose Henry VIII, to exercise his role as the as a Christian emperor, and because he saw Henry as an enemy of the church. So the Reformation drove a great wedge into the unity of Europe. And what impact did the Reformation have on ideas of Englishness, and how did it affect England's relationship with the rest of Europe? Well, you could call it the original Brexit. It was, it was fundamental to Henry's Reformation, that England was an empire to itself. Now, by that was meant that it, there were no external authorities competent to decide on English matters. And all such uh, issues stopped with the crown. Now, that was radically different from what everybody had assumed in the Christian Middle Ages, where... The church was an international organization and Christendom itself, the the, the fabric of Christendom was international. So the idea of the nation state, uh, which could define and settle issues without reference to anybody else, was a really quite new concept and a solvent. Uh, You can argue that the, the unity of Christendom in the Middle Ages was always more apparent than real. There were, of course, real divisions within Christian Europe. And if you just think about the history of the papacy in the 14th and 15th century, one stage you actually had three people claiming to be the popes with various nations around Europe giving their allegiance to one or the other. So there were real divisions before the Reformation, but the Reformation institutionalized all that. And, uh, if you like, provided a theological rationale for it. So it was as much about stamping monarchical power as religious doctrine? Yes. One of the um, concepts that historians of religion over the last 50 years have made a great deal of use of, and particularly over the last 30 or 40 years, is confessionalization. That is, the, the use of the new religious orthodoxies, both Catholic and Protestant, to consolidate particular national identities and particular power structures. So Christian rulers, whether they were Catholics or Protestants, they of course have their genuine religious convictions in in most cases, but these 
religious convictions are also convenient pegs on which to hang royal authority. So the enforcement of religious orthodoxy and correct religious practice becomes an instrument of state control or social control. That concept can be a bit reductivist because it can downplay the genuine religious passions that underlay uh, state action. But it's a, it's a salutary reminder that there's a price tag on religion and religion is about secular power as well as about uh, theological realities. Would you say that that was the case with Henry VIII, that his personal beliefs didn't necessarily reflect his drastic actions? That, that's certainly the case. Henry, for example, uh, burnt Protestants for denying the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And his own religion, it, it's a bit mysterious, um, but it was essentially conservative. If you leave aside the abolition of the religious life, which was a very large thing to leave aside, uh, he does also seem to have come at the end of his life to reject the idea of um, pilgrimage and devotion to the saints. But certainly sacramentally and ritually, he remained Catholic. And it wasn't safe for Protestants, even those very close to him, like Thomas Cranmer, to admit to the, their real beliefs. And certainly the, the Henrician Reformation was all about the consolidation of royal power. Where can we still see the impact of the Reformation today? Well, the whole history of England for the last four or five centuries has been a Protestant history. So just think of national cultural institutions like Handel's Messiah or hymn singing at football matches. Uh, so at, at a very um, visceral level, the shared culture of English people has a strong substratum of Protestant religion. When people are in trouble, they'll say the Lord's Prayer and they use the Lord's Prayer that the reformers gave them. Uh, at a wider level, I think the Protestant heritage of England has been fading, at least for the last century, so that I think people have much less invested in being Protestant and in the Reformation heritage than used to be the case. For example, I think people are much more intensely aware now of what was lost at the Reformation, the destruction of art, the abolition of great buildings, of the monastic life itself. And if you think of the reaction to Princess Diana's death, the spontaneous creation of shrines, uh, the way people light candles, leave objects at roadsides where people have been killed. That just didn't happen 50 years ago because these are Catholic gestures. So there's been a, a slippage, which is partly rooted in religious ignorance, I think, that people now, they're much more eclectic uh, in their symbolic life and taboos that the Reformation transmitted into the culture about shrines, about 
the materiality I was talking about earlier, the, the feeling that um, what is spiritual cannot be physical. I, I think that has gone. But I suppose one of the things that Brexit shows us is that there is a very strong sense of cultural separation from the continent, of England being distinctive, uh, having its own set of values, and some of that at least is a Reformation inheritance. That was Eamon Duffy. Reformation Divided, Catholics, Protestants and the Conversion of England is out now in the UK, published by Bloomsbury. And in the US, it will be released next week by the same publisher. And you can read a version of this interview in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale. This month's edition also includes articles on Victorian poverty, the Roman Praetorian Guard, Elizabeth I's Irish nemesis, and plenty more. You can get hold of our March issue in all good news agents in the UK and around the world in our many digital formats. Outside of the UK, it might still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United Kingdom, where you can get 13 issues for the price of just eight. To find out more details and take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP214. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now let's rejoin Ellie for this week's History News. A hoard of Iron Age gold, which could be the oldest ever discovered in Britain, has been found in a field in Staffordshire. The bracelet and four gold neckbands, known as torques, are thought to date between 400 and 250 BC and were discovered by two amateur metal detectorists. Dr Julia Farley, curator of British and European Iron Age collections for the British Museum, stated, 
The talks were probably worn by wealthy and powerful women, perhaps people from the continent who had married into the local community. Piecing together how these objects came to be carefully buried in a Staffordshire field will give us an invaluable insight into life in Iron Age Britain. This unique find is of international importance. In other news, a rule book outlining an early form of football has been uncovered. The rule book is believed to have been written in 1833 by John Hope, who had founded the Football Club of Edinburgh nine years earlier. It predates the Cambridge Rules of 1848, often seen as the earliest attempt to record the laws of the game. It also predates the formation of the Scottish or English football associations by several decades. Hope's rules do differ somewhat from those of the modern game. While he outlawed tripping, he did allow players to push their opponents. OK, well, that's pretty much it for this week. But please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the post-war occupations of Germany and Japan and finding out if history has any pointers to creating a perfect society. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.